Okay. Top five best podcast intros ever. They're all on Dungeons and Daddies. Seriously. They're, they're wonderful. Top five least charismatic podcasters. I am certain that I make that list. Probably just sneaking in right at number five. I'm Mark D, and I'm going to be reliving a lot of my past traumas watching 2000's High Fidelity, starring and co-written by John Cusack. Hey, what's up? Just a little phone call here from your friend, Mark. This, I guess, is the trailer mark because uh, I did not want the trailer for this movie in this podcast and I'll tell you why it's difficult to make a trailer I know that I fully understand that love to all the trailer houses out there but this one misses I'll just need to you know we're, we're figuring it out together but you know it, it's fun I, I'm just calling a friend we're just chatting so Anyway, the really important thing here, Rob talks to the camera. It's like the thoughts he has as prose in the book are expressed by him to a friend. He, he turns, it's not a voiceover, he turns, he looks the camera, and he talks to it like he's talking to a friend. And it's great. Rob, played by John Cusack, owns a record store called Championship Vinyl in Chicago, which has the Rosencrantz and Guildenstern of this movie, Dick and Barry, working there. And they're all different types of music stops. Rob, being the more socially normative of the three and his interactions with the customers. His store isn't doing amazing, but it's keeping the lights on. Rob has been dating Laura long-term, and we start out the movie in the middle of their breakup. The movie is then a de- this deconstruction uh, of, of, of Rob's long-term love life to try to understand what, what, what's happening for him. And he, he does this in the frame, this, the conceit, right, I guess is what they would call it, the frame of a top five list, top five breakups. And we'll learn shortly into the movie that the way that they communicate with each other in the music store, the way that they bond, the way that they... Uh, past the time is by creating these top five lists for music for very specific and different instances and um, it's, it's pretty great and I I know that real people like that exist in the world and I think that they all went to work at cracked.com because god damn does the internet love a listicle the trailer had like rom-com voiceover I felt like it was going for something that that the movie isn't. So I don't even want it to be in here to cloud your judgment. It's got jokes. It's about relationships. I even called it and considered it a rom-com, and that's probably a failing on my part to um, to prevent the domination of like movie studio marketing tactics to like plug things into like oh this quadrant and all that kind of uh, demographic marketing uh, stuff. But this is a Nick Hornby adaptation, and if you know Nick Hornby books, you'll probably know that there have been others. One British and one American version of a fever pitch, one for everybody, right? About a boy 
Juliet Naked, A Long Way Down. He's also BAFTA-nominated and Academy Award-nominated for screenwriting. Fever Pitch was basically a memoir. High Fidelity is likely in many ways a partial memoir. He has written on music and, and sports with some regularity, so he's coming at this with some personal stakes. And I, I think that's probably what speaks to a lot of the people with regards to his work. Julia Naked may be a spiritual successor to High Fidelity based on the plot synopsis, but I don't know anything past that. Anyway, that was my trailer that I called you up on my actual phone to relay to you. By the numbers, High Fidelity was released April 2nd, 2000 and ended up with a $47 million worldwide gross on a $30 million budget. Those $30 million got us a runtime of 1 hour and 53 minutes, which was rated a 7.4 on IMDb, a 91% on the Tomato Meter, and a 79 on Metacritic. Interesting to note that the audience score on Rotten Tomatoes is a 90%. That is a high correlation. There was a high-fidelity musical for a while, and there was recently a high-fidelity show on Hulu. There is a lot to unpack in this movie, but as a Nicholas Hornby adaptation, that is superlatively normal. This is uh, definitely a movie from the point of view of a man or, or men everywhere, and, and it shows. I'm aghast to remember that this was, in many ways, some weird power fantasy of my teenage years. Being an irreconcilably obnoxious movie snob working in a cool record store in Chicago and just seriously destroying romantic relationships seemed cool as fuck. Of course, I didn't get it. At the, at the time. I, I fully get it now. And it's better. It is. It's honestly a great movie in the same vein as 500 Days of Summer and Scott Pilgrim versus the World. The movie option for the book High Fidelity was picked up and developed by Touchstone Pictures. The squad of Cusack and his partners... D.V. DeVicentis and Steve Pink were selected to handle the story. These three were Chicagoans who took the actual sensibilities of the city into consideration in adapting the location from London. Yeah, London was a character in this book previously. Yeah, I read the book uh, many years ago. I don't have a great recollection of exactly what's different, but I... I do remember that I felt that it wasn't really that different, which is good. It's good. Chicago itself plays less into the screenplay than the specificity of the locations in London. However, it does play a lot for texture. If you know Chicago, then you'll pick up on a lot of the details and locations. But if you're not, then at the very least, it will feel consistent. Speaking of The Squad, Cusack, we know, has had massive success 
but has also found his star dimming. Coincidentally, in the wake of being outspokenly political and openly critical of the Hollywood establishment. D.V. DeVicentis has had some projects since and has worked on some realistic, quotes, dramas like American Crime Story and Pam and Tommy. Steve Pink has had some work as a director and has picked up stuff like 2006's Accepted, The Hot Tub Time Machine, Children's Hospital, Angie Tribeca, which I love, and Cobra Kai. Stephen Frears is a UK director who started back in the 70s. He's definitely of a different generation. I think he first started to come over in the late 80s. He had a string of movies and a few episodes of, of TV, then he hit on High Fidelity. There was a lot of other stuff there, but the only thing that I recognize offhand is the Helen Mirren vehicle, The Queen. So it stands to reason that he was keeping busy on that side of the pond. He stumbled into directing from a certain point of view and has continually done so for years with his most recent work in 2022 and another project listed as recently announced. Frears had previously worked with Cusack in 1990 on a movie called The Grifters, and that is the connection that got him brought on to the project. It was Cusack who said, and I'm paraphrasing here, that Frears is an actor's director in that he genuinely knows when to step in and when to let the actors run with it. While Cusack, Devicentis, and Pink were hip theater kids from Chicago who had an ear to the ground, it also took music supervisor Kathy Nelson and production consultant Dan Koretsky to make the music go in this movie and bridge that generational gap. Kathy Nelson is a real motherfucking music supervisor with a whole host of credits that include, and I mention these because they're notable to me, not that they're the best ones, Rush Hour 2, Gone in 60 Seconds, The Born Identity, Bad Boys 2, Friday Night Lights, Shaun of the Dead, Hot Fuzz, Forgetting Sarah Marshall, Scott Pilgrim vs. the World, and the top-selling movie of 2022, Top Gun Maverick. There is a metric fuck-ton of better movies in her credits, but she's 100% proven as a top-tier music executive. Dan Koretsky is co-founder of the Chicago-based music label Drag City and clearly brings that Chicago indie scene's cool weight to bear upon this movie's sound. They did great. They fucking killed it. No one better. Devicentis is a version of Rob Gordon in his own life, but this wasn't what kicked the movie off. Kathy Nelson, who was working at Disney, got a call from a friend who let her know that Disney had acquired the rights to the book, High Fidelity, the option, so to speak. Nelson had already worked with Cusack, Devicentis, and Pink in the past. More on this later. So she immediately reached out to studio execs to recommend them for the movie. The squad brings in Koretsky as this was literally the guy, right? This is the guy. This is my music guy. And they would get music records from him in real life. He had a record label, so he's bringing 
music to the table. Fun fact for no one who has a life. Koretsky took Jack Black to Steve Albini's studio to pre-record the performance in the event that the live sound wasn't going to work out. Turns out Jack Black couldn't uh, sync up to his earlier performances. He couldn't do the song the same way twice. So after a few takes, they finally got one where everything went right and he did the whole song live in one take. Pretty cool. Pretty fucking cool. I think this is a great point to talk about the abundance of on-screen talent this movie has. Cusack is a legend. Fucking look him up. But then we have uh, Ibn uh, Gili. Hey, trailer mark here again. And uh, it turns out that the correct pronunciation is Ibn Yaila. Oh, jeez, man, my headphone cord stuck in the phone receiver. Ibn Yaila. And I hope that it's Yaila, because if it isn't, then I don't have a chance in hell of figuring it out. I, I again, I don't know that that pronunciation is how you do it, but she is a, an absolutely wonderful Danish actress. She was cast by Frears when he met her at the Berlin Film Festival. And while she clearly speaks very good English and probably worked on her dialect for the film. She has a slight accent in some lines. Now, I'm not a fan of examining the physical aspects of female actors as there is already an inordinate amount of pressure on their looks, but uh, has this uh, uncanny otherworldliness to her, which in my mind is a, is a massive casting win. Rob in the movie talks about punching his weight. And uh, I can't remember if that's the exact turn of phrase, but it, it, it was used roughly in that capacity. Perhaps it was something like playing in your league. But that uncanny mystery and that incredible grace brought to the character of Laura clearly implied that she was upon examination out of Rob's league above his weight class but like so many things in this movie rob doesn't see it or is is clearly wrong in his assessment her incredibly slight and uh unlocatable accent her bangs which i don't think i've ever seen another movie star pull off bangs quite like that these all play into the part and i'd like to think that it was incredibly intentional it may have just been a happy accident but it, it worked plays these micro-expressions on her face as the character goes through changes within a few lines of dialogue. This uncanniness is something that I had noticed when I saw the film on TV, and when I finally decided to look closer, I, I found reasons for them. A lot of times, if a place seems a bit off, but it's located in the United States, it's actually filmed in Canada. There are times where a place seems a bit off kilter and is located in the United States. Those are, those are in New Zealand. The Frighteners, uh, episode two, I believe, of this podcast, was filmed in New Zealand because it was so eerie and so uncanny. They play it as if it was the United States, but it is absolutely not, and it is uh, pretty obvious that that is the case. 
But there are aspects to her performance that, as a teenager and even as a young adult, I didn't really fully pick up on. How the character's humor is described as dry but welcoming and how that pays off in the movie. I, I really, really enjoyed this performance. They do diegetically set up the accent with Laura's mom leaving a message on Rob's answering machine. She has what I would presume to be a Danish accent. I also never picked up on it, but the movie is somewhat meticulous in paying off everything it's setting up. And case in point, there is a Danish flag just visible in the funeral scene. Jack Black, if you don't know who Jack Black is in this stage of his career, where he isn't famous, he had already had many small parts as weirdos in productions like The X-Files, Northern Exposure, Demolition Man, The Jackal, Waterworld, Mars Attacks, The Cable Guy, and Enemy of the State, among others. He, I'm sure you're aware, is part of the music project or band, and I'm, I'm not sure which it might be called, uh, but, but it is called Tenacious D, which in 2000 was really on the come up. Black had been in stuff, but he hadn't, he hadn't quite made it yet, and he was somewhat banking on his music career. He'd been in the orbit of Cusack and company previously, so they insisted on him in the role of Barry, the excessively eccentric and aggressive music snob that worked at Championship Records. Spoiler alert, it paid off. It fucking paid off. If anyone ever tells you that high fidelity is too serious, too sad, too dour, that's because they skipped all the scenes with Barry in them. He's got a, a physicality and a presence that is second to none, and it is used, as most doctors advise, in moderation to punctuate the rest of the movie to great success. This is a standout and career-launching performance from Jack Black, who had the good fortune of being cast by people who both knew him and knew the material, and by being in a Stephen Frears movie, he let Jack Black kind of find the voice and improvise. And Frears, upon finding that, that Jack Black couldn't just redo a scene for the close-up, insisted on then having two cameras on him at all time so that they could switch comps in the edit. Black is lightning, and no two takes strike the same place. They didn't capture him in a bottle, but they, they captured him on film. Black goes on to make Orange County, where he's also excellently weird, and just becomes Jack Black in the movie, and music starts sense from here on out. This is his Launchpad McQuack. Tim Robbins is back. Yes, that is the connection from the previous movie IQ. Tim Robbins, who plays Ian Raymond, or Ian or Ray. Truly an awful character in so many ways. The movie characters definitely go out of their way to punctuate the ways that any random person could be, quote, awful, and slot Ray into that space really well. Even though he doesn't seem quite that awful, but he's maybe not what anyone in the movie would be looking for. And hell yes, Joan Cusack is in this, and she is great. She's the pissed-off friend, and she is just fucking killing it. 
I love Joan Cusack in everything. She's perfect, and as kids say these days on the Talk Talk, she understood the assignment, and it is her life. Her part is small, but her performance is a, a tour de force in comedic timing. I wish I was as good at anything as Joan Cusack is as good at as showing up in a movie. I really do genuinely love her. She's great. She's the mutual friend between Rob and Laura in this movie, and it, it just works. It is, it is so perfect. Lily Taylor, who you may have 100% seen in something, is in this briefly as one of Rob's exes. Her acting credits started in 86 and are just consistent throughout the years. X-Files episodes, The Mind Eye is where I first remember her from, and that's what I always think of, but she's been in a bunch of TV and movies before and since. High Fidelity. She's great and always delivers. If you want to put a measure on stardom, then maybe Catherine Zeta-Jones is at the top of the power rankings. So, you know, she has a reputation uh, before her character shows up in this movie. She had mostly been in the Billy Zane vehicle, The Phantom, which I, I may be the only person that remembers, as well as the young Indiana Jones Chronicles for some period of time. But then... She's back-to-back starring in The Mask of Zorro, which slaps, and Entrapment, which, you know, probably is the movie to make a woman's ass look the best in the history of Hollywood. Her physical attributes were so well utilized in Entrapment, it's, it's basically a meme at this point. Any person attracted to women of a certain age will give you a knowing look when you mention entrapment. Anyway, Catherine Zeta-Jones of Welsh nationality kills, fucking destroys as Charlie, the mega cosmopolitan ex that had, that Rob had in college. Like so many other casts in this movie, she is 100% spot on and gets the fucking memo. Lisa Bonet plays the enigmatic Marie DeSalle, which has the most non-Rob energy in this movie. And that was the goal of the character. In the book, Marie DeSalle is an American, so this, having been set in London, would have been non-Rob energy to the max. And Lisa Bonet brings it to the role, too. Excellent cast. Everyone is an excellent cast in this movie, pretty much. She's notable for being mysterious and alluring as fuck, but she's also notable because her daughter, Zoe Kravitz, is playing, or plays, Rob in the gender-swapped Hulu series. When you watch this movie, you also get Sarah Gilbert, who has an adorable nerd role, Joel Carter, who was a particularly alluring movie critic ex who drops the biggest fucking reality check on the asshole, that is Rob Gordon, uh, Natasha Gregson Wagner, or Wagner, I guess, Wagner, Kurt Wagner, no, Natasha Gregson Wagner, who is the two-minute warning of potential hookups, and Drake Bell, who plays young Rob. And apparently there's some shit going on with Drake Bell. I don't know exactly what it is, but I saw 
headlines because of my search history and yikes. So there's a lot to discuss here, but we actually, we need to move on. Getting into the substance of the movie versus the actor-character correlations, there's a lot to unpack. We start the movie in media res, but arranged by in-universe chronology, Rob Gordon is a serial dater, pedantic asshole who ends up falling into owning a record store and drives his awesome girlfriend away. That's it. That's the hook, and and that's really the, the, the plot of the movie. But it, the movie is actually about unpacking all this male garbage shit. I called this a teen male power fantasy, and I meant it. Rob is awful, but he eats. I am, of course, going to tie this into Stephen King's Hearts in Atlantis, the novella of the same name of the book, Hearts in Atlantis. It's easy at this point. Rob is talking to Marie, connects with her over the 1960s show The Prisoner, starring Patrick McGowan, which is a, an in-joke between Peter and Carol, who are uh, the A story of that novella. I don't recall if that particular detail was in the novelization of High Fidelity, but High Fidelity did come out four years before Hearts in Atlantis, so it could be a thing. Stephen King, I see you, and I appreciate you. But in this scene, Rob also fully admits that he, quote, invented the sketch of a decent, sensitive guy because I'm in the position to invent him. And that is, that is the movie right there. That is it. Rob has these personas. He's fake. He's always looking for the exit. The turns table, however, because Marie DeSalle is not only wise to him, but operating on her own agenda with her own agency. She characterizes Rob as, and I quote, a fuck. And that's never been a position that he's held. He feels that he's held quite the opposite position. And I, th I think that he was fully, like, expecting to start a relationship with her right then and there. But I don't know that it would have mattered to him. There's a lot in this movie, and I've said it and I'll say it again. One of the most important things is Rob addressing the audience. It comes from the book and it 100% works. It's near American Psycho level fourth wall because Rob is, is near Patrick Bateman levels of selfish. Cusack, however, uses all his charm and charisma to address the camera in such an approachable way. He portrays the jilted ex particularly well, and I'd love to tell you that I don't have first-hand experience in that field, but I would be lying. I would also love to tell you that I wasn't as much of a fucking asshole, or at least as oblivious to the problems in a relationship, but that I would then also be lying. This movie definitely holds a mirror up to the worst aspects of many men, and the book does as well. And perhaps this is the most important part of the story. Yeah, 
Laura breaks up with Rob. Of course, Rob goes through all types of hysterics and eventually starts going through his self-curated top five breakups list to figure out what's wrong with him and shocking surprise. It's him. He jumps through logical hoops to absolve himself from any wrongdoing. However, it's Charlie, the most outspoken and glamorous ex, which he, he, by the way, which he totally had sealed the deal with. She tells him, and he is a, he's a master of self-sabotage and is a complete jerk to the women around him. When your mom calls you and tells you some cold ass shit, that's some cold shit is what he says. That means it's true as fuck. Okay. Rob's mom early in the movie reads the tea leaves and mentions that these tea leaves are actually garbage. Thanks, Rob. And that's what you need to know. The rest of the chicanery he gets up to is Rob trying to protect himself and his identity. And maybe that's ultimately the whole thing. Maybe being a music snob to this degree is taking your identity on your knowledge and taste of music. Maybe just letting go and being a person was what Rob needed to do and is what he starts to do at the end of the movie. But Rob does rob things several times. He he kills a conversation that could get him what he's looking for because he's so wrapped up in himself. He's just really great at talking to the camera, and it's easy to forget that. Seeing it with fresh adult eyes is so informative. It's shown several times, not only in dialogue. When he's walking up to a store and completely ignores the skaters, he walks right into the path of the ramp and gets pissed when the skater in front of him runs into him. It should have been patently obvious to anyone with eyes what the situation was. It was not to Rob because he's so self-absorbed, but he, he starts to change. And that's also the whole movie. Rob is unaware of how much of a fucking asshole he actually is. I mean, he's actually aware that he is and fully admits to being some level of a fucking asshole, but he's in denial about the actual tier and status of being a fucking asshole. And even when shit gets better, he still flips out at Laura and Barry and Justin and Vince, and that's all coming 100% from insecurity. He even uses a compliment from Laura to flirt, to, to flirt, to flirt with Caroline Fortis, the music journalist. And that is some cold shit, my friend. I would normally and academically like to go into all the reasons why Rob is indeed a fucking asshole, but in defense of my own identity, I will abstain. I do love this movie a lot, and it holds a place in my heart with other music movies like Scott Pilgrim and Nick and Nora's Infinite Playlists. This iteration of that movie may have more mass appeal through the absolute charisma of this cast and the strength of its screenplay, which isn't wall-to-wall perfect, but it delivers. The similarities to Scott Pilgrim may not have gone unnoticed by me, but the paradigm of the obnoxious and awful scene Lothario 
is also not one that I identify with, personally. The obnoxious part, yes, as you can tell by listening to this podcast, but I've worked on training myself out of that on social situations. While I could go on about how much of an asshole Rob is, I think that Cusack's charisma simply allows for him to turn around. There was a deleted scene set up by a phone call where he visits the home of a wealthy, soon-to-be divorcee to buy some records. She's insistent that he takes the lot for $50 because she's very upset with her husband, and he politely refuses as if he has some code of honor here. Rob refuses, right? He sees the value of the record collection emotionally as well as financially and refuses to abscond with them for such little money, which is a bit of a bro code to save the cat type situation. It paints Rob as an elitist, yes, a snob, certainly, but not greedy in that way, not impersonal. Having the record isn't everything for him, and the music itself, the history of it, is important to him. We see this when he starts reorganizing his record collection autobiographically, which is both interesting and something that I do as well. I can usually outline some of the circumstances surrounding the acquisition of the records that I have, so I I fully get it. The scene was cut, and it's on the Blu-ray, but it, it was a Save the Cat type situation that maybe was a, a bit too late in the pace of the movie or a bit too ineffective. Rob already has a couple Save the Cats, and he has uh, John Cusack conveys the pain in his eyes, the vulnerability. There's also... um. If we're going to talk about Easter eggs and deleted scenes, there's also a Three Floyds Brewing sticker on a payphone in one of the deleted scenes. And that's great. I hope to see you on a Dark Lord day one day. But there is also this consumerism that is fostered by the eliteness of this music scene, independent or otherwise. There is that drive to buy, buy, buy. What do you have is, is your worth. I see it. I've, I've seen it. I've seen it in the record store scenes. I've seen it in my life outside of this movie. It's real. It exists for records, for retro games, for beer. It's somewhat awful, and uh, I don't know that I care for it too much, if at all, right, anymore. And Rob was, was a little bit above that in a weird way, like a little bit. Not a lot, but it, it, it was cool. But he's also part of it because he's he owns a record store. But I guess he was nice about it. I mean, I don't I don't know what the point I'm I'm trying to make here is. But the movie does uh, a great job of setups and payoffs. There is a lot of that rhyming that people talk about in stories. The the parallels and the compliments, like both Laura and Rob in that order, put forth something romantic in a very unromantic way, and it being romantic or unromantic is not the point of either. These are propositions that are both incredibly honest and open and vulnerable. Uh, Barry is set up to be a, a demon from the outset, but you, you start to see the, the, the cracks in the armor. Dick is set up to be quite the nebbish. However, he's one of the two that spits game in this entire movie. 
The teenage criminals become partners in Rob's artistic and professional endeavors in, in Top 5 Records, which is incredibly clever, and, and I wish I would have thought of that name. The movie starts with Laura and Rob splitting and ends with them getting closer together. From the POV of Rob, she's first leaving and then she's becoming more involved. I've been intentionally vague because I don't want to ruin everything if you haven't seen the movie, but you should absolutely see this movie. I also want to point out uh, Rob's audio gear and shout out to Dutch. If he's listening, if not, well, fuck me, I guess. I don't have a good identification on his headphones at home, but he's got a couple of great uh, Sansui pieces and an NAD CD player. A friend of mine gave me a Sansui amp, I f and, and it wasn't working, but I found that it was selling for about 600 bucks, not working. So I, I gave it back to him, and I said, hey, just, just sell this on eBay, man. Make your money. But I still have the turntable that he gave me, and that's currently the one that is hooked up to the Kenwood receiver that another friend gave me. And I have another turntable that another other friend gave me. So I see these things the same way that Rob sees records. Everything has a story attached to it, and I'm, I'm cursed with the worst selective memory, where I'll forget to do things for myself, but I, again, can think of the, the circumstances surrounding the objects that I possess, and they are, in a way, an external validation of the life that I have lived, and yet are not quality judgments on how that life was lived. But I, I love the tactile nature of the time period. Cell phones existed, but weren't commonly used. I don't think there's a cell phone in this entire movie. Rob had all these corded phones that he would have to fumble with and carry around, and and those are great. I have one, too. It's connected to my VoIP uh, system. <laughs> I'm, I'm that nerd when I say I'm, I'm Mark D, IT guy. Yeah, I'm fucking Mark D, the IT guy. Yes, I have an Asterix server in my house. Do I use it for anything? Absolutely not. But it's there, and I can call a physical landline phone that I have maybe eight feet behind me. But that shit is cool, is my point. That is all cool. That is all artifacts of time gone by. I guess I'm trying to wrap this up in a way that is conclusive, but I don't think that it's happening. This episode is, it's already late. It's, it's been more than a month. I guess I'll, I'll leave it with, this movie is good. A lot of things are really specific, and most of them are very accurate, and the ones that aren't don't actually matter. By that I mean, yes, Stiff Little Fingers is 100% an influence on Green Day, and you can readily hear that in their song, Falling Down. Yes, many men and many people in general are fucking assholes in their daily lives, in relationships. Yes, this is a wonderful little portrait of the Chicago music scene, but it is highly idealized. No one is getting addicted to heroin. No one ODs. The worst of it is that they're just sad, angry, and lonely. Yes, Rob feeling rejected was completely misplaced, and he didn't understand himself nor his partners. That night at Charlie's place, he could have smashed. He was the last one there, and she was into it, but he was so... He was so... And, and I... I I don't want to be prescriptive because that that feels like narcissism a little bit, but 
he was so narcissistic. Um, my favorite comic book villain is Doctor Doom because his pathos was so strong that he he burned his face despite his face in a way, and that's a clear example. We we can all be better, better than Doctor Doom, one hundred percent better than Rob Gordon. Yeah, even though Rob Gordon's trying to get better, we can be better as well. Or better than him if you want to run that race. It's fine. It isn't easy, though. Find something that makes you happy. Don't be angry in a corner. Make something. Put something into the world. Make the world a better place. I've I've been in that place, and it isn't good. It's It's not a good place to be in. Make a thing. Put it out in the world. Share with people. I'm not a master of artistic tastes or anything, but that's... That's why I started making this podcast on my own, to just to just do something, a fucking hobby for the 21st century. Which brings me to an actual announcement. It's it's really fitting that in the high fidelity episode, I announced my new podcast venture called Songs on Repeat. This is going to be a music centric talk show where a guest and I will bring a song and we will listen to both songs or would have listened to them on repeat. What are the tunes that get you through the days? What are the tracks that you are milking for that every last little bit of serotonin? Find out on Songs on Repeat, which, since it will actually have the songs on the show, will have full episodes available only on Spotify. I'm working out some ideas where I might be able to put out the kind of limited version on the normal RSS feed, but it's very much a project in progress. So I'm announcing it here so that I'll, I'll commit to it and finish it. But anyway, at this juncture, at this state, I must bid you adieu. Next episode is going to be my other favorite rom-com. And the tie-in here is that John Cusack, D.V. DeLaurentis, and Stephen Pink were involved as well. And Joan Cusack. So stay safe. Pretend you're a dungeon dragon. Be nice to each other. Your mom knows all your bad shit more than you do. Pay attention. Stay safe. And good night.